Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around, round, get around, I get around. Today, Sokol Hero. University of Southern California, Professor Danny Sokol, runs a sceptical eye over the rush to ex-ante regulation and digital platforms. So we get a narrative that everyone believes in regulation and that there seems to be a global consensus. But it turns out that, in fact, we don't have this global consensus. Number one, the ex-ante trend, and I mean outside of merger control, is, I think, still in some ways controversial and really experimental. And we don't have a set of best practices of what it would look like. Now, Matt, I'm not sure we should be putting people's names into film titles just because they rhyme, but we went through this with five feasy pieces. We did, but this isn't Danny's name. It's okay. Uh, This is SoCal Hero, as in Southern California. Okay. And Local Hero, of course, is a very charming 1983 film by Bill Forsyth with a great soundtrack by Mark Knopfler, which was instrumental in my thinking it was a good idea to learn the saxophone in high school. Oh, and how long did that last? Let's just say not quite as long as this podcast now has. No, well... What else has been happening around, round, I get around the grounds? Well, Danny's about to talk a bit about supermarkets, among many other things. And it's interesting to see now that the ACCC is looking for views on a very small acquisition with quite a bit of history. And that's the acquisition by Woolworths of a mid-sized IGA supermarket, about 840 square metres, that's in Carabar, just outside Queanbeyan. Carabar? I must have driven past that on my way back from the snow. But why else would it sound familiar? Perhaps because Woolworths tried to buy the very same place back in 2008, and the ACCC said no. Uh, And that was because Woolworths already owned two nearby stores within the local retail supermarket market over three to five kilometre radius around Carabar. It's very interesting, isn't it? So much of the time these days we're talking about global geographic markets that are basically the whole world. And now we're talking about a three to five kilometre radius around Queanbeyan. But there's been a lot of fuss about acquisitions of supermarket sites over the years, hasn't there? That's right. And especially back then, there was a lot of concern about creeping acquisitions, as they call it, especially in supermarkets, who might just make one small acquisition after another. And none of them individually would substantially lessen competition. But you end up kind of sleepwalking into a monopoly or a duopoly situation. And there were some amendments to the competition law proposed around that, weren't there? Family First Senator Steve Fielding had one in 2007. Remember him? I remember that the other senators used to call him Creepy Jesus, apparently. That was him, right? Creepy acquisitions. Yeah, and his bill didn't go anywhere, and neither did Nick Xenophon's a couple of years later. The government released two discussion papers that didn't reach any conclusion, and then a bill that lapsed, until finally, in 2011, it passed an amendment that it said would solve the creeping acquisitions problem by effectively changing what had been a substantial market to any market in the merger test. That's it? That's pretty much it. Um, And it was pointed out at the time that the ACCC already looked at markets in that way, including in the three to five kilometre market around Carabar in that case. So why does Woolworths think it's got a chance now? Well, there are a couple of new supermarkets in the area. There's quite a new Aldi at Jero Bombera mm-hmm. uh, and also a new IJ at Gugon. Oh, stop next area. time. Yeah. Well, that's outside the three to five kilometre radius, but it's got a pretty decent road to it. Uh-huh. Also, last time, the ACCC thought there was a much better buyer who would upgrade the site, provide more competition, but that ended up falling through. And perhaps there isn't another buyer of that calibre in that position this time around. And 2008 was a couple of ACCC chairs ago, wasn't it? It was. Graham Samuel was the chair back then. And and that was when the ACCC's inquiry found that grocery retail was workably competitive overall. And I don't think Rod Sims ever described it quite like that. No. Woolies may feel now that the ACCC under the new chair might have a more nuanced view. Though I guess with the focus on the cost of living at the moment, they'll have to be pretty certain that the deal won't raise prices at the checkout. 
Well, you don't often get a second bite of the cherry, do you? Or is it the apple? I guess it'll be the apple with the logo and everything. I guess it would. So what else has been going on? Well, Qantas is looking to have a second bite after it got away with the first bite, just. You might remember that in 2019, it bought almost 20% of Alliance Airlines, and that was without telling the ACCC. Mm. They then found out and put out a statement of issues with a couple of red lights in the old language. And to be clear, that's not red light in the Amsterdam sense. That's where the ACCC says they're concerned that the acquisition is likely to lessen competition and not just may lessen competition. That's right. May is more of an orange light, but these are a couple of reds. Uh, they said that Qantas's stake was likely to lessen competition on routes in Queensland, where Alliance was its only competitor, and also likely to hinder competition between the two of them and make Alliance less competitive generally. Is there a but coming? There is one. Uh, it took more than three years in the end, but uh, in April 2022, the HBC told Qantas that its investigation was over and it didn't plan to take anything further at this stage. And then in May, Qantas announced that it would buy the other 80% of Alliance, this time subject to HBC clearance. And that was painted in the press as a kind of test for the new chair, wasn't it? And whether she'd be as tough on business as her predecessor. Yeah, and Qantas had always said that it would like to buy a majority in Alliance uh, if the HBC were to allow it. So it wasn't a total surprise, but it might be seen as a bit of a provocation to go for that full ownership right after the ACCC had entered the investigation into the first 20%. Would the argument be that if they'd already decided that 20% was enough to give Qantas a big influence over how competitive Alliance would be, that maybe 100% wouldn't make that much difference? That could be it. The ACCC has now, though, released a new statement of issues with pretty similar concerns to the last one. Two red lights this time again, and also an orange one. Mm, not what you'd want to see if you're 30,000 feet over Queensland. No. Can you come back from two red lights? Well, you can, uh, but sometimes you can't even come back from two orange lights. And that's what happened to the three investment funds who tried to buy the port of Geelong, which is the largest bulk commodity port in Victoria earlier this year. Geelong's also the team that has the most AFL premiership points this season. They do, but it's still wide open. Sydney can win it from here. It's the hope that kills you. It always is. But back in March, the ACCC was concerned that one of the fund managers, Palisade, would end up controlling 100% of the Port of Portland, as well as 49% of the Port of Geelong, both in Victoria, and that might lessen competition in bulk cargo port services. And that issue of common ownership by these big infrastructure funds has been on the ACCC's radar for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, possibly it's sonar. I'm not sure about that. There was a parliamentary inquiry last year into the risks of common ownership and capital concentration, and that recommended some greater powers for the ACCC to deal with those issues. And the ACCC, of course, has always been interested in ports, and this year one of its priorities is competition in global and domestic supply chains. So altogether, it's, uh, it's been a perfect storm. Any port in a perfect storm. So what happened in the end? Did the ACCC say no? Not officially. There were a couple of stretches where the parties were gathering information, and then they withdrew the application for clearance altogether, which does seem to be happening a bit lately. Well, sometimes businesses don't want to have a final decision against them that could be used as a precedent in the future, I guess. That's right. And you can understand that, of course, but it's always a bit of a shame for the rest of us in not having that extra insight into the ACCC's thinking. Mm, poor you. <laughs> uh, but new special counsel Sarah Lynch is coming back to the podcast in the next few weeks to tell us more about what's been happening across the port sector. And in the meantime, our colleagues Louise Klamka and Heidi Leong caught up with Professor Danny Sokol in Melbourne to talk about digital platforms, ex ante regulation and an extended riff about soup. Yeah, I kind of feel like we're making ourselves a bit obsolete here, Moya, but let's take a listen. Welcome, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to actually physically be here in Australia at Melbourne Law School, where I had taught a few years ago. So we've come here today to talk a little bit more about digital platforms and the digital economy. So over the last few years, there's been massive call 
by regulators in different jurisdictions for ex-ante regulation. Now, I know, I think it was before 2019, there was kind of a view globally that maybe current competition laws were adept at addressing issues in the digital space. But since the last couple of years, there were quite a few proposals. We know we've got proposals in Europe, in the UK, Germany, and the US is also taking a slightly different approach. What do you think of these approaches? And we are looking at this as well in Australia. And do you have any recommendations on how we should be looking at these issues and how we should be designing regulation? This is really, from an institutional standpoint, I think the critical issue in competition law and policy today. So we get a narrative that everyone believes in regulation and that there seems to be a global consensus. But it turns out that, in fact, we don't have this global consensus. Number one, the ex-ante trend, and I mean outside of merger control, is, I think, still in some ways controversial and really experimental. And we don't have a set of best practices of what it would look like. So there are different models for ex-ante regulation. For example, in the UK, it's much more a shared governance model of uh, code of conduct. looks very different from what we might see in Germany. Some countries actually dispute the need for broad ex-ante competition regulation. Korea, Brazil, for example. Some enforcers, Brazil and Mexico, favor competition law over regulation. The German government, for example, has identified certain structural flaws in the DMA. Some regulators, the UK, Mexico, Brazil, indeed even the OECD, express some concerns about the DMA's impact or potential impact, I guess, on innovation. Some EU officials and also the German government seem to have raised concern about whether the DMA can be meaningfully implemented. There's a lot of uncertainty as to the actual language in the DMA that various regulators have expressed. And this lack of clarity in language may lead to litigation as to what does the language actually mean. And there's a certain amount of geopolitical risk that some parts of the non-competition part of U.S. government seems to have, particularly both the Commerce Department and, interestingly enough, our Federal Bureau of Investigation have about the geopolitical elements of the DMA. And yet, we're told in Australia that the DMA seems to be the model for how to regulate, a model that, as best we can tell from what I've just described, is unclear, a model that, in fact, does not seem to be representative of global best practices, even from some of the more interventionist competition authorities. So where does that leave Australia? Historically, Australia had been more careful in its approach. I think under Rod Sims, things changed where he went much further than some of the previous chairs had gone. And with Gina, I guess it remains to be seen the direction things will go. And this kind of uncertainty has left a number of companies, both Australian-based and multinationals, in a sense of uncertainty where they can't accurately predict what the future holds. And it has probably caused a rethink for certain kinds of business strategies until they have a little more certainty for what do these potential changes mean, what's going to be adopted. And part of the problem, it seems to me, is when you're given such a huge menu, you can be overwhelmed. And we haven't had, as best I can tell, the kind of signaling of what's on aisle number five may in fact be one of the main ingredients for dinner, as opposed to what's aisle seven or aisle 12. And I mentioned that because you also have a supermarket code. 
Remember when self-preferencing was all about supermarkets? I remember when supermarkets was the big thing and all the competition analysis and risk assessment was about the essential access to food for Australian families. It seems to have shifted to access to gifts and other essential items. Yes. How'd that work out with uh, the supermarket code? Well, the ACCC had a long history of scrutinising the supermarket sector. So we had that grocery inquiry in 2008. The ACCC has taken very few cases in Australia in terms of bringing them to court, but one of the key ones in Australia was against Metcash. The ACCC also publicised repeatedly its concerns with what it calls creeping acquisitions, and that was largely in relation to the large supermarket chains acquiring smaller grocery stores around the country. So their gripe was that our existing laws at the time couldn't address the issue. Some of our listeners might even recall that back in around 2012, I think, the ACCC negotiated a special voluntary protocol with two of the the major chains to um, voluntarily notify all of its acquisitions. I think some of that has since dropped off. But anyway, the ACCC has moved on a bit now. They seem to broadly accept that bricks and mortar model has been heavily disrupted by technology. We seem to have settled that the current broad competition laws can handle it as opposed to needing specific rules for that sector. Well, some of it wasn't even the current wave of technology. If I recall, one of the big disruptive factors was Aldi's in the Australian market. This was unanticipated at the time. So this had nothing to do with ultimately what went into the supermarket code, if I recall, which I think teaches a broader lesson, which is that competition is not always where you think it's going to come from with differentiated products and services. Absolutely. Actually, this brings us to a very interesting segue. So obviously in supermarkets, we talked about self-preferencing and um, there's always been the issue that competition regulators were very interested in supermarkets having their home brands and preferring those brands over third-party brands. So self-preferencing is not a new issue, but yet um, we know in the ACCC's latest discussion... Well, hold on. When we say it's not a new issue, let's just spend a a moment, if we can, on on the supermarkets literature. So both the theoretical supermarket self-preferencing literature, which actually primarily exists within marketing I.O., journals, and the empirical supermarkets self-preferencing literature, also mostly in marketing, shows that the self-preferencing is pro-competitive. How does that pro-competition effect manifest, Danny? Lower prices, primarily. But, you know, presumably breakfast cereals, differentiation. I don't know what you all eat other than Vegemite. (laughs) And avocado toast. And avocado toast. But in the states where cereal historically had mattered, matters less now. It turns out that you have multiple flavors of, say, Special K. The reason why I think all of this matters is not merely because it's my breakfast time and your evening time, but simply a lot of competition in digital markets also comes from product differentiation. This, I think, is something that's been missed so much within the broader, one might almost say hysteria, of big is bad. You don't have to be big to compete with somebody else who's big. You just have to be different. Going back to the supermarket analogy, if you were the HBC walking through that supermarket and thinking about what ingredients they would pick up for the dinner that evening, what would you put in the soup and what would you leave out of the soup? That's a really great question. So first, I'd actually have a pre-question. Do we really need soup? (laughs) Well, so this sounds actually like the ACCC's current approach because they have said, to use the analogy, that they have not determined that we do need soup. 
but they want to understand from market participants if they were to have soup, what would that soup be and what what ingredients would be put into it? So maybe you also have to assume we're eating soup. Right. It's a politically charged area in ways that it had really never been before. We we see uh, populists really on both sides. Some populists who say optimal enforcement is just short of actual enforcement. Certainly that can't be right. But it's that kind of populism, I'd say, of the of the hardcore free market variety that led to an equally bad populism of the left of big must be bad. The first thing is I want to applaud the ACCC, right? for listening to stakeholders. Transparency and due process are important. These are the hallmarks for good decision-making. It provides not just the, the right kind of inputs of making sure that people's voices are heard that will lead to better decision-making, but it provides legitimacy relative to other parts of government and, and the population as a whole. So let me say, I think that's great. One thing that I've noticed in some of the other ACCC reports, they jump through steps a little too quickly. I say, well, hold on a second. You know, you're jumping to conclusions before I've seen all the work. The real awkwardness is this process got started under a prior agency head, and all of a sudden you have a new head. And there's the difficulty of what we might call the dead hand of a former head trying to sort of push the direction of the agency after they're gone. It's not the first time we've seen it, but it creates complications. So the ACCC is not in such an easy position. And the question is, how do you really evaluate what next step should be? Not just short term, but long term. The ACCC at this point would be better off in somehow narrowing the scope of what they say that some of the priorities are. What's clear to me is there, there's a little too much going on. It's like Bruce Springsteen in his brief solo period saying about 57 channels and nothing on. Not his best work. But actually, you know, the title was actually quite profound. How Sometimes we have too much choice. And I think right now the ACCC is in that stage where there's a little too much to choose from. And if they were to narrow down to a few core topics where they've identified there's a real need for reform, I think that would help the business community in Australia quite a bit. And from now on, of course, I'll only reference Australian musicians. So speaking of narrowing down to a few issues, we know in Australia, there have not been many merger cases, let alone successful merger cases taken on by the ACCC. Well, hold on a second. The fact that parties are really not able to get the ACCC super excited about mergers and the fact that you don't really see these cases fully litigated out suggests one of two things. Number one, the kind of mergers you might see in Australia don't present competitive problems. Hard to believe that because, you know, what industry doesn't have only two or three players in Australia? Isn't every market a concentrated market in Australia? We generally have very concentrated markets. Yeah. So you would think that there should be a lot of uh, aggressive merger enforcement with all kinds of conditions or just, you know, the, the attempt to block mergers because it's already highly concentrated. So to me, this is quite fascinating that in Australia, mergers doesn't really seem to be where the action is. I think it's because everybody, despite the merger review regime being voluntary and non-suspensory, follows it. And a high degree of people voluntarily notify their mergers to the HBC. Most of them get dealt with very quickly in a pre-assessment process. A few dozen go to a public review every year. And if the ACCC opposes the merger, people usually abide by that decision or they reach agreement on divestiture undertakings or other remedies 
with the ACCC voluntarily. So very few end up contested. And that's probably strangely a sign that the informal merger clearance system works very well. Now, most jurisdictions have compulsory rather than voluntary. For those outside of Australia's beautiful jurisdiction, why was this never chained to a mandatory merger jurisdiction? What, what was the impetus for having something only voluntary? That's a really interesting question. It was actually subject to a debate in one of our um, competition law reviews a few decades ago. So I know in, in 1991, we had the Cooney report and that had recommended a mandatory notification for what it calls um, acquisitions that are substantial in nature. We also had a Treasury discussion paper in 1994, and that actually contained quite detailed proposals for a compulsory notification regime. But interestingly, these proposals were, were never taken up by, by governments. I mean, admittedly, I was in primary school during the 90s, so merger control issues weren't really on my radar then. I was probably busy playing Sonic the Hedgehog on my Sega Mega Drive, but it could have been something, I don't know, it could have been something to do with the trade-off between, you know, on the one hand, having a compulsory regime where the Trade Practices Commission would have full visibility over these substantial acquisitions versus, you know, ensuring we don't increase the red tape to the detriment of Australia's economic growth and investment, you know, in circumstances where we were in the 90s, and actually we, we still are needing to catch up with the bigger economic players in the world. But of course, we're raising this issue of, of mandatory versus voluntary notification in Australia again now. And in particular, the ACCC has raised this debate in relation to the digital sector or even to a select few large platforms. Do you think there's something different now which causes Australia to, to look at this question again? Many countries that have had voluntary regimes at some point decide that they want to go to a mandatory regime. And they do that because they feel they kind of have a sense of when to intervene because they're getting enough kinds of notifications. And there seems to be some amount of international pressure. Has that moment come in Australia? Look, it's hard to say at this point because as Louise pointed out earlier, we think our voluntary merger control regime has actually been working really well. It hasn't precluded the ACCC from looking at transactions that other regulators are focusing on around the world. Our new chair has observed recently that because we don't have this mandatory notification regime, the ACCC tends to get approached comparatively later on global deals. She said that it's problematic because this means the ACCC does face a fair bit of time pressure. They either might be in a position of holding up a global transaction or having the parties complete the deal before they get to finish their review. But actually, that comment's not specific to digital platforms. Anyway, I read recently that the Grand Institute has described Australia as getting older, fatter and slower, citing a, a declining contribution from technological advancement as one of the key reasons for this. Do you think there's any link between this and regulation of, of digital platforms in Australia? Why aren't people investing in the kind of human capital development that allows for scaling up and economic innovation? What happened in Australia that we didn't see that? And is competition law the solution? Since apparently every problem is a competition law problem, at least it was under Rod Sims. I'm trying to understand this Australian reality of what, what happened. Is there some kind of way of describing how this comes back to how we think about tech issues in Australia? Yeah, I think people are scared. I do think that there is something to it being a bit of a reaction to things that are difficult and new and hard to understand. 
And at times of great change, people can sometimes get scared and think, oh my God, we don't have the right tools to deal with this, or we don't know what comes next. It's disrupting traditional media. It's disrupting traditional banking. These people that we've placed our faith in for all of these decades are under threat. What do we do? There must be a solution that staves off all of this change. And at some level, a lot of that kind of fear, I think, is driving the panic about technology and how you deal with that at a political level, at a policy level. And that has, at least at some level, consciously or unconsciously fed into the debate about how competition policy deals with digital markets. If that's where Australia is, how do you create a workable competition policy? Why all of a sudden do we get a sense of we need change? And when you say, well, could you articulate what the change is and and we don't get something beyond because tech is different? And you say, well, could you explain how it's different? And then we just keep on getting the circular logic, well, it's different, therefore we need to change. Well, could you explain how? And we don't seem to be moving past that in a lot of these conversations. Where is this fear and anxiety coming from? Is it from traditional industries? Is it from competitors that made all kinds of strategic decisions? Turns out they bet on the wrong horse, the wrong technology, the wrong business strategy. Where did this come from? From those of us outside of Australia, how do we understand this new Australian reality? I think also part of this reactivity to big tech and why people think it's so different, it's because um, they've identified that these markets are really dynamic. And in fact, maybe even the regulators approach to solving problems the way they investigate matters, maybe they haven't been able to keep up with that pace. So that's sort of driving them a little bit to rush to conclusions. So I guess one question is whether you had any thoughts on what could be done in terms of improving tools, for example, for assessing competitive effects. I know one of the reasons why they think enforcement isn't a good model is because the cases just take too long. If you count from the start of the investigation to bring the the case to, to it being litigated, and the decision, it could be close to a decade before you get a result. And the market may have changed a lot. Exactly. But then we have to weigh that with how important is rule of law? How important are the procedural safeguards that across so many parts of the Australian legal system, you almost take for granted when you hear this kind of stuff like, what do you mean you want to take away our procedural rights? What do you mean? So I understand the push of let's expedite things because we want to have quick solutions. But at the same time, there's a reason why we have these guardrails in place. And it's because we want to make sure that parties are afforded their due process. And one other thing was when you rush things, you tend to be less transparent about it. Just about every industry at this point has been digitized. So when we think about legal rules in this area, the idea of doing something just different from digital, the first question is, what's not digital? We should be really concerned about procedural fairness type issues. And yes, cases take long, but really good cases, you don't have to see fully through because companies will realize that the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them, they'll stop. Whether it's a merger, they'll scuttle the merger. If it's conduct, they'll change their conduct and ask for some kind of concessions from the government to stop doing things and maybe get some kind of settlement. So part of the problem is everyone says, well, what about the cases? Well, don't just measure the cases, measure the settlements. 
Measure the abandoned deals, the ones where, in the face of overwhelming evidence, where the ACCC has really done its job very effectively. This is exactly what we want competition authorities to do. I get very nervous in, in a world where we take away these kinds of procedural rights. Yes, cases take a long time. These are very complicated business issues where a lot of times the behavior is gray. It's not clearly wrong. On tough issues, it should take time. We assume that these markets are highly concentrated. We assume that these markets are not competitive. Here are a series of recommendations. I'm thinking, wait a second, show your work each step of the way. I want you to show your work before we rush to judgment. This is basically the approach that the DMA has taken. They move directly to remedies. What about competitive effects? Doesn't that matter? Apparently not in Europe. Can I ask one more question? Web 3.0. Do you think we need to be thinking more about Web 3.0? So the point about disintermediation, perhaps the concentration of power may no longer be in these large platforms because it's going to be dispersed. Is it too soon to be thinking about it? So if it turns out that technology has overtaken our thinking, boy, we've really screwed up in the last few years then by focusing on these issues. So I have spent a semester as a visiting professor in engineering, and blockchain was everywhere. And, and as best I can tell it, when we think about trust, it fundamentally transforms that relationship. Wow, if blockchain's reality lives up to the height, we have wasted a lot of time and resources focusing on the platforms that we know today. I think it's still too early to know, is blockchain real or hype? I mean, tokens mattered for all of, what, a minute? And then they didn't anymore? We've also had cryptocurrencies that lasted all of five or six years, and now all of a sudden, no one's talking about that anymore. So it's unclear. But if this one is the game changer, I'll just ask myself, what am I doing in my competition life that this has been my focus for so long, only to have everything that I've really spent my academic life passionately following really lead to nothing? The, the one thing I'm sure of is in this world of uncertainty, when do you intervene with regard to fast moving markets? So it turns out regulation works best with traditional markets. I'm not saying we shouldn't regulate high tech markets. In fact, I've written about guiding principles of regulation. A lot of it has to be based on what do we actually know? If you can't answer the question of what do we know and what is the problem, if you can't articulate those two things, it's just a lot of caution before you intervene. I'm not saying that's an overly harsh threshold. I'm just saying that there should be some guiding principles. And you may have just literally changed the entire course of the history of the ACCC by saying, what if Web.0 really is a game changer? Caused existential crisis yes. all over. Remember to put that in our next submission. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Web 3.0. <laughs> but, but that's right, isn't it, Danny? You have to actually identify what is the problem and what are you trying to solve for? What is the end game? What is competition for? The, the goal of competition law surely is to have efficiency and consumer welfare. And the problems being identified don't seem to have anything to do with inefficiency or consumer harm in this world of competition analysis in digital platforms. No, it's about certain countries manipulating election results. Uh, Which is a, a problem, but absolutely. it's not a competition law problem. No, but apparently competition law can, if we can use it to solve certain issues and, and it turns out fines are high, remedies are significant. And we have other areas of law where, frankly, the remedies are not 
you know, in terms of financial penalties are not high. So most privacy regimes and, and data breach regimes, the penalties are actually relatively low. And so everything has to be a competition problem. Why? Because we, we can't find as high in these other areas. So instead of actually fixing the other areas, we just say, well, now it's a competition problem. And that's not quite right. And yet this is what we're confronted with in our competition law world on a regular basis, that competition law is the equivalent of fill in the blank, IP law, uh, privacy law, um, data security law, uh, national security law. The, you know, competition law can do all of these things and more. Oh, I'm sorry. And civil rights law, uh, among, among others. Yeah, yeah. All right, we got to wrap up now. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you. What a great interview. It was okay, I guess. No, they did a great job. And it's always good to step back and ask what we're really doing here and why and whether we've missed out any steps along the way. Well, it does seem like by getting into all this detail about the kind of ex ante regulation that should apply to digital platforms, we're not actually getting a chance to interrogate whether we need ex ante regulation at all. Yeah, the ACCC certainly went in with some views, I think it's fair to say. And uh, we'll see where they come out pretty soon, of course, because the interim report will be handed to government by the end of September. And so far, they've been released to the public pretty much 28 days later. Wasn't that a post-apocalyptic film about the release of a virus that makes everyone go crazy with homicidal rage? Yeah, but this is just a coincidence. It's not like oh, that at I'm all. I'm sure. And do you have Vegemite or cereal for breakfast? Look, I'm actually having a fair bit of avocado toast at the moment. Avocado? Well, they're so cheap right now. It's like we're all millionaires, isn't no, it? No, it's terrific. And to think that just a few years ago, there were investigations into whether the avocado growers had manipulated the avocado market to increase sales before Christmas. Yes. And wound up running out of avocados. And a few years before that, didn't the chair of Avocados Australia report the supermarkets to the ACCC because they were charging too much? Yeah, he threatened to. I'm not sure anything came of it. But in the US, there's a concern now that the avocado trade from Mexico has been taken over by drug cartels. So we should count ourselves lucky. Gosh, I wonder what's in them. Anyway, what's in your crystal ball this week, Matt? Is it guacamole? It's not. But um, Danny and Heidi were talking about Web3, and Danny sounded a bit sceptical about cryptocurrencies, which I can sort of relate to. Well, I think most people are concerned about the amount of energy that crypto mining uses, more than some whole countries do, actually, and not all of it is renewable. That's right. And mostly that's because the main cryptocurrencies at the moment use what they call proof of work to verify transactions and make new crypto. And to do that, they need to guess the answer to a maths problem that's hard to solve but is easy to verify. And they do that by using a ton of computing power. And the problems get harder and more energy intensive as more people get involved. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, but now Ethereum, which is the biggest cryptocurrency that isn't Bitcoin, is about to undergo what they're calling the merge. The merge. When they shift from the proof of work system to a different approach, which they're calling proof of stake, and which is meant to use 99.95% less energy. That sounds nice and green. Can you explain to me how proof of stake is different? That's asking a lot, Moya. Apparently, you can make a deposit of crypto into a smart contract, which you'll lose if you try to cheat the system, but you'll get more of it if you participate in the validation process in the way that you're supposed to. Maybe we should get Heidi Leung back to explain it all. Let's do that. The Crystal Ball does say that if the switch ends up working, it could solve a pretty big problem with crypto adoption. And if it doesn't work, then it could be quite a setback for that sector. Well, surely a cryptocurrency problem should require you to complete a cryptic crossword, shouldn't it? Ideally, a competition law cryptic crossword. Would that be proof of stake or proof of work? It would be proof of something. Um, on that topic, <laughs> Daniel Young has submitted the first solution to the current cryptic crossword. Yay, Daniel. So he'll be an answer in the next one. Keep a note. He's a partner at Houston Kemp, of course, so they're ahead in the Constructors' Championship so far. But there's still time to submit your solution before all the crypto miners do. Well, I think we'd better call this a day before my head explodes. 
Remember, you can find relevant links, including to the competition law cryptic crossword, in our show notes, or you can email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests to come, including special counsel Jeff Peterson on the old arm wrestle between the Commonwealth and the States over regulation, mm-hmm. and Sarah Lynch with that port report. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. Till next time, this was the Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.